0: Hello and welcome to Find the Outside, the podcast. You're with us. Look, I'm, I'm going to be honest, we just actually recorded the podcast with That's Brett. It was amazing. Yeah, Brett Kincan, unbelievable podcast. We're so excited you're going to get to hear it. Right, yeah. But what happened was he got onto the recording platform, started talking about this incredible book he's reading called The Fourth Wave, and then that started a conversation... And I just hit record and then we were in it. So we're doing the intro now, right, Juice?
1: That's right. And it is I think it's called a fourth turning, just by the way. Oh. But fourth they'll turning. hear it. Um yeah. and so yes, please tune in to this particular episode. It I still like I feel like I'm buzzing with uh, being in conversation with this man who is both just like this amazing, you know, it's this thing we talked about from the, with the art of hosting from the beginning strategic and soulful like i feel like he brings it both he brings a fresh eye to what is happening right now around the world and climate and ecology as well as kind of a deep eye experience as a deeply visionary and hopeful stance toward the future like firmly rooted in reality but moving toward the future. I just loved it.
0: And dude, getting shit done. Like yeah. I work with this man and like he yeah. gets it done and he gets it done locally within his own community, but he's getting it done nationally now as well. So like, you know, a, a, a deeply effective human being, which is a delight, isn't it?
1: Absolutely.
0: Anyway, enjoy the pod, my friends. You'll be diving in straight in the middle of a conversation, but it's worth it
1: genuine catharsis this is from the dark night dark nights of the soul by thomas moore genuine catharsis requires the emotions of shame dread fear puzzlement and even hopelessness like just to kind of like say like if you're feeling that like you're in the right place right mm-hmm. that's actually what's happening right
0: so i hear you and then i was just uh i just listened to the christiana Figueres podcast mm-hmm. from on being i don't know if you've mm-hmm. had a chance to listen to that yet Brad. i'd really recommend it it's I mean, she's kind of a hero of mine anyway as someone who facilitates multi-stakeholder groups, you know, the person who managed to facilitate the Paris Accords, got to be fairly impressive in my field of practice. Um, And uh, she was talking about, like, how important it is to be, like, sharing a story of, like, we can do this. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's possible. Look at what's happening. Look, look, by 2030, we may be globally on 50% renewables you know? And, and it was just really interesting to hear her talk. So on the one hand, she's, you know, we're talking about like these essential elements of ge- engaging with the mythical underworld, right? You right. know, you're talking about dread, you're talking about fear, you're talking about deep self-doubt that allows you to rewrite your understanding of who you are and your narrative on what the world is, you know? Yet on the other hand, it was so awesome to hear Christiana just saying, hey, We've got to get away from this narrative of everything's impossible because it's creating the conditions for people to give up. And that's unacceptable, you know? And they're like, we've got to start building a narrative around what is possible and how do we move it together and pointing out how much progress we're making. I don't know how that lands with the two of you based on the kind of how you dug into this
2: first part of this convo. It was interesting. I was just talking to Denise Fairchild a couple of days ago. She's um, real kind of, matriarch in some of this early stage of equity-centered community development work. And she was talking about the second impossible dream. The first impossible Mm -hmm. dream was desegregation and that the second Mm -hmm. impossible Mm -hmm. dream is a sort of Um, Mm post-capitalism. We have to have a new economic order that's based on sharing and sufficiency and abundance for all. And unless we have that, we won't have a world that's stable and and able to address the challenges that we're facing. So anyway, I just love this idea of a sort of second impossible dream.
1: I love that. I love that. And Tamino, you, know, you and I have talked in the past about how I, I find um, the kind of gloom and doom narrative, like is somehow, and I'm going to use terrible language here, but kind of inherently privileged. Like I just like really tend to like really resist it. And I'll go back to why, but I feel like what Thomas Moore is saying is that actually we must bring all of ourselves forward into the next rather than where we focus. It's like, a, it's like often as we talk about as we connect, next, we only want to take the good parts. And that, I think- is unrealistic. It's the idea of composting that we actually talked about just a few minutes ago. Tim and I talked about like, you're actually, if we only take the good parts with us, we will inevitably be informed by some of the dark, by the shadow, unless we let that into the light and let it be. And then we can actually build the new that actually understands that dread, terror, hopelessness is part of the human condition. But it doesn't mean we stop there, right? It doesn't mean that we, Kind of like stay there and like oh my gosh it's so bad. Um, it, for me, Thomas Moore is asking for wholeness in our moving forward rather than um, focus on 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 the negative. And and you know I've said before part of what occurs to me why that narrative of doing loom feels so rooted in privilege is because so many of our peoples have faced genocide and annihilation over and over and over. And we're somehow pretending that this is new. And, and you know, chattel slavery, what we did in the Americas, I was just in Peru and hearing the stories there, like what has happened there is nothing short of a decimation of a people in mm. a way of life. And yet, right, and yet there are songs that are sung. There are dances that are danced. There is praise that is made. Um That includes some of that dark, but also moves us toward the forward. So like that's, I I don't know if I answered all of that, but that's kind of where my mind goes. It's like, it's like the depth of moving forward when we say what's possible, as well as the aspiration. Hmm.
2: I wonder sometimes, though, if another extension of the privilege that we're talking about, and I think that's really well said Tuesday, there are so many societies that have had to endure centuries of of decimation and degradation and still hold on to their their intrinsic worldview and culture and have accomplished that which is truly remarkable but that I wonder if another part of the kind of privilege is this notion that somehow we can make this transition without sacrifice that we can make this transition right. without suffering right. that we can make this transition without right. having to let go of things that we don't want to let go of Mm -hmm. And so I don't want to be that person on your podcast that's holding to some of the difficulty of this. But I do think that I don't frankly believe there is a path through the um, dysfunctional elements of our social cultural context that includes like the way the economy is structured and the way our politics functions that can be accomplished without difficulty. And if we don't prepare ourselves for that difficulty, if we don't create strategies that are based on engaging with one another when we are in difficulty and within all of the dysfunctions of our behavior that occur when we're in stress and we don't know what to do, then I think we won't create effective pathways. And to me, my work is really entirely about creating pathways, pathways many of which aren't yet really being fully called for, and that's the dilemma of the kind of organizing that I feel like mm-hmm. I do is that we have to organize in the historical moment that we're in, preparing for a future historical moment that's going to be different or we'll be needing the things that we're working on now, but that aren't completely called for yet. Hmm.
0: We, uh, we had Manish Jain on the podcast. He's, he's an old friend of ours and he's an incredible uh, community organizer based in Udopur in India. Um, but he's also one of the founders of the Unlearning Movement and And, uh, but he was talking about how he considers the work that they do in prisons as composting, Mm. you know, it's like where the current system is really failing, you know, there's incredible opportunity to do something generative, positive and powerful to actually like compost where the system is failing and beginning to rot (laughs) In some ways, he he, I, he I spoke very powerfully about this idea of like, these are really the edges where we need to be working and generating the viable alternatives and giving people a direct experience. He's actually talking about the margins being some of the most kind of productive and potential places for kind of building a viable alternative economy or society or experience in a prison, you know. And so, like, how do you so Brett, when you describe your your work as o- almost like we're before our time, though my, my experience of your work is that generally it's right on time, so I'm interested about that. But like, how do you organize ahead of your time? How do you organize that ahead of a curve, like how do you sense into a future to then be able to meet the needs as they emerge? Do you see what I'm saying? Like,
2: yeah. I don't know it's interesting tim whether i th- i actually consciously am thinking about the future or whether i'm simply uh. seeing where there are intersection opportunities i think a part of what i've noticed about myself is that i'm i'm a sort of synthetic seer and so i can see when something's happening and when something else is happening and that those two things together can make something new possible mm. and so a lot of it is is actually just kind of a maybe I'm just being used all the time as a kind of synapse creator that then can sort of seed and connect and help point, And then that new thing gets to take off in that direction. So I, I don't know. I do think what I, from a practical standpoint, it is a really uh, challenging dynamic where we're trying to create things that aren't, um, they aren't sufficiently resourced. So I'll give you the, an example of our current work. So we're working with urban communities across the country to try to help expand urban forestry. And we're doing that not because of a few more trees is, is nice, which it is. It's nice. But if it's because we believe that, we know that from lots of practical experience and research, that the ability of communities to remain livable in the, the future conditions of climate that we're going to be living into requires that we have a much more robust urban living system that is sheltering us than we in most places have i mean this this quote that i used for quite a while that used to be shocking to people and now they kind of realize that that's just kind of now known but is that well in 2019 when this statistic came out there were only 3 places in the country that that characteristically experienced temperatures of more than 105 degrees 30 days at a time. And that the the projection was and is now that by 2040, 50-ish, a third of all communities in the United States will be experiencing those kinds of conditions. So we just don't, we're not accustomed, we're not prepared for, we don't even know how to live within those kinds of conditions. And we'll figure that out in some way, better or worse. And what we're saying is now is the moment where we have to actually make these really significant social investments to have, like, because the work, the forest that we plant now won't be ready until 20 or 40 or 50. But where I'm going with this is to say our system currently doesn't recognize the essential nature of that scale of work. We're talking about urban forestry done at 10 to 50 X, the size that it's currently being Mm. done. Mm -hmm. And so how do we get there? Well, the first thing we do is we start doing it at a much smaller scale but oriented in ways that show so many benefits that we entice more resources towards that until at the point where we finally realize, oh my God, it's, it's really go time. We really now must that we say, oh, well, that's great because we've been building these pathways in all these different places. And here's all the people that know how to take that from one X to 10 X to 50 X. And here's the lessons that you need to learn. And here's the institutions you need to create. And so that's the kind of, um, Building that we're trying to do of a of an infrastructure that. that heads towards you know that creates that pathway.
0: I just want to thank you for that because that's that's like mm-hmm. a very practical grounded answer to the question that I asked you. Like that was, thank you. jeez I know you have a question.
1: Well, I you know we just got to talking because we were so interested in <laughs> what you're doing, Brad, and what you're reading, and what you know, and so I just we just kind of dove in. But I feel like okay, so let's just pop back. You said, we are doing this. I'm curious about who is the we? Who are you working with? What is your work? I know agroforestry is a part of your work, but can you just give our listeners a little sense of your work and how you do it just as an introduction?
2: Yeah, thanks. So I work for the city of Boulder, Colorado, which is an enormous privilege and honor because as a relatively small city of maybe a hundred thousand people, our community has had a a real orientation towards environmental issues for decades and decades, and then I should also acknowledge that our our place hosted peoples that long predate my uh, predecessors and ancestors who lived in this landscape that we live in in a much more sustainable way than we do now mm. and, and that we inherited a landscape of such robust um, productivity and richness and and we're trying, frankly, to actually remember a lot of that mm. and bring those those knowledge holders back. But, but in the context of this contemporary Western, largely white um, community that I live in, we also host 11 federal labs. And so we have most of the climate labs in the country with mm. at least one institution here. So we literally have 3,000 climate scientists in Boulder. And so wow. our community has had this kind of interest and orientation and concern about climate change. We've been a part of the sort of early cities movement to to try to influence the dysfunctional international politics of this by bringing, building a movement of local jurisdictions, subnational governments, if you will, to try to push on that climate work, which was always really defined as essentially greenhouse gas emissions reduction. So it was fundamentally mm-hmm. about changing energy systems. And for many years, our city was doing really interesting things, trying to reclaim, actually condemn and take back our electric utility because we didn't feel like they were going fast enough to decarbonizing their energy sources. And so it was in this context of a community that's really, that values and is concerned about that and it puts resources towards that, that I started to, and others started to suggest that we ought to actually also consider what role the living world plays
1: in Mm. climate.
2: (laughs) So that started in the sort of way you might expect, which is, okay, let's think about how the living world can Bring down more carbon because that's the problem. We're going to get too much in the atmosphere. And this is a very simple equation, just like too much up there. We need to get it down here and blah, blah, blah. So we did some soil sequestration work on our agricultural lands and a few other things. And my community actually supported me in, in working with a, a national organization called the Urban Sustainability Directors Network, which is this network of about 250 or 60 cities and counties across North America who have been for years kind of convening these kind of shared learning and innovation efforts around all kinds of things from zero waste to, to climate to, you know, transportation changes. And I started organizing a monthly um, sort of get together around, OK, well, let's talk about what we have come to call nature based solutions.
1: Mm-hmm. And
2: we went through a whole series of different topics over several years from biochar to urban forestry to agricultural sequestration to resilience. And then eventually we started to realize, well, there's a there's a huge need and opportunity here, and we need to start creating infrastructure that can build capacity faster in this space, partly because one of the things that we've learned, it's just finally starting to cohere as a sort of understood body of knowledge that the climate is not simply a geochemical machine that's mm. operated solely on the basis mm. of CO2 in, CO2 out. And if we just get uh-huh. that balance right, everything will be... St- it's fine, which is still the predominant view, and it's one of the reasons why there are all these people out there now pushing technological solutions, these carbon right. drawdown, these carbon right. removal strategies. It was
0: actually a huge part of the agreement coming out of COP, wasn't it? Right,
2: right. which is just, frankly, more technological bullshit around how we're going to solve a problem that isn't just about technology. And when we, when we thought that the climate was only – being disrupted by burning fossil fuels then there was just this really simple correlation but the reality is the climate is a biologically mediated dynamic mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the climate is the consequence of the of the literal inhale and exhale of the of the living world that takes place globally on an annual basis. And in fact, if you look at the Keeling curve or any of the kind of measures of rising atmospheric CO2, what you'll notice, if you actually really look at it closely, is it's not a smooth line. It's this zigzag because the earth breathes in and breathes out annually. And we have just disrupted that not only by burning fossil fuels, but as it turns out, more than a third of the excess CO2 in the atmosphere is not from burning fossil fuels. It's from the decarbonization of the living world. It's from mm. all the degradation and the deforestation and the fallow agriculture and all the ways that we've just oxidized all of that living CO2 back up into the atmosphere. A third? A third or more. Wow. And by the way, this is... The other consequence of that decarbonization of the living world is that we're living on a planet that's operating at something like 50% of the photosynthetic capability it had probably just a few hundred years ago. Think about that. Wow. 50% of the primary productive capability of this living world has been lost. The UN says that something like 70% of the Earth's surface is deeply degraded. And that's what the consequence is. So that's yeah. the bad news. And that's why also the reality is we will not solve the climate problem or the biodiversity problem or or this myriad of other existential crises we face through technological solutions. We will solve it by regenerating the living world. That's the only pathway to a stable, resilient, abundant world that we want to live in.
0: You know what? I I know this isn't the correct language. But like, it's the only fucking machine big enough to do it. That's right. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and it's not a machine. Yeah. I understand that. Like, it's an interconnected, interdependent living system. Right. But it's almost like, stop building these tiny little fucking right. machines for this right. massive problem. We've actually, like, the scale of the problem demands a scale of response. Totally. You, you
2: know? And, uh, yeah, yeah. But here's the dilemma. Those tiny little fucking machines is what they're going to try to spend trillions of dollars building. Yeah. When instead of putting the trillions of dollars into the hands of a few really wealthy people who are really putting forward a false solution, we should put that in the hands of hundreds of millions of people working in landscapes all across the planet to do that regenerative work. And the amazing thing is that we've done this before. We have literally done this before, that during the 30s, in the Dust Bowl, we actually were were on the precipice of an ecological catastrophe that by itself might have actually triggered much more significant global change because of the unraveling of the Great Plains ecosystem. And because of the remarkable foresight and desperation that the Roosevelt Mm -hmm. administration had, it's like, we've got to put millions of people to work, folks, because we have like social unrest building rapidly. And what they did is three waves of public works projects through the 30s, one of which was restoring forests, the second was restoring soils, and the third was building public works that employed 6 million people over 10 years
1: hmm.
2: and planted 2 billion trees and actually stabilized an ecological system that was unraveling at a remarkable pace. And there's other work, like John Liu has documented the work on the Lowe's Plateau in China, where over the course of just a decade or two, they took a place that could no longer support viable human populations and turned it back into a fully functioning, economically productive social place.
0: I've seen those pictures. Uh, they're remarkable. You know, yeah. the, one of the first events I did with Betsy Taylor, who was mm. the person who introduced us, yeah. you know, through VCI with the Volgeno Climate Initiative, that I remember seeing those pictures. It was uh, just outside of Paris, this event. And I remember seeing those two pictures, the before and after pictures of unbelievable. Yeah. And the timescale, the time scale was th- that quick? Yeah. What?
2: Yeah. That it's possible? When this gets to your point, Tuesday, and, and yours too, Tim, is that the only possible partner we have that can bring the scale of capacity to solving this problem is the living world. And that's the good news. That's the other side of this, which is mm. imagine what could happen if we brought the other 50% of the living world back online. It's, mm-hmm. it's really amazing.
1: So I just wanted to hear, um, as a person who's obviously seeing, I mean, you just said the bad side and the good side, so like seeing, like firmly rooted in the reality where we are, but able to see another future. Although I heard you say, I don't know that I'm thinking about that. I know that I vision it, but I, I can hear it as you're speaking. I can hear that you can see another future. I'm curious where, I mean, whether it's looking to the past and how we did those projects, like where... Do we get the will to do this? Like, what is the, where is the will? I mean, I've heard so many people in the last week talk about COP28 and and none of it's been positive, even though I think the headlines out of it are positive. But like, so I'm just curious, like, where, what is your sense of how we build the will to galvanize this other 50% that's available? Well,
2: that's kind of where we started our conversation today. I, I am a student of history in believe that what I see in it from the work of many historians is that there are cycles of societies. I think that the Western European societies have really created this kind of a dominant cycle that we're in the midst of right now, and which is coming to a dramatic change point. And I think we saw, and by the mapping of these cycles that I subscribe to, the last time we saw the cycle was in the twenties, 30s, and 40s. Mm. Uh-huh. And so you see the run-up of the Roaring Twenties, the crash, the the long period of difficulty. And it wasn't just in the United States, obviously remember that all most of Europe was going through these kind of economic and social upheavals. Fascism was on the rise dramatically through the 30s. That there were actually, if you've listened to some of Rachel Maddow's stuff, the fascism was becoming quite popular in the United States. There was a very large proportion of our society that wanted to go fascist and fascists didn't even have a bad name at that point.
0: Yeah. The UK too, by the way. historically. Yeah. yeah.
2: They looked to Mussolini and Hitler as actually having like these new kind of impressive social systems. So I, I think that we're in a historical parallel um, because, and it's not just once over, this is like cycles mm-hmm. of history. And that where I'm going is to say, I don't think that there's, a simple, easy transition that means we don't have to change to get there. I think that you have to get to the place where there's enough uh, really fundamental disorientation and disintegration before that actually happens. And for me, it's actually part slightly comforting because I've spent 40 years as a community organizer feeling like none of my work was actually making fundamental systemic change. And I think that part of what I now rationalize that to be about is that we weren't in a historical cycle that really was ready to change.
1: Mm -hmm. But
2: we, we are rapidly entering that space where there will be no choice. And the question then is just what choice we make as populations. And that's where the, the differences in the choices that were made in Germany and Italy and the United States and, and England and the precarious balance that we were in, we could have easily gone fascist in the United States. All those forces were at play. And trying all at their hardest to take charge. Hmm. And that's why, to me, the work that determines which way that teeter totter moves is all about what's happening before you finally hit that fulcrum where it's going to shift and whether we have constructive pathways to offer people that are more attractive than the ones that will certainly be offered by the dispits and the and the sociopaths that are, you know, mm-hmm. rapidly emerging. Mm. Amazing.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So um, I'm going to segue here. Good, sorry. Trave- no, no, it's awesome. I mean, this
1: is so good. I could talk about this forever. Yeah, quickly. I'm in, I'm in, yeah. I'm in.
0: Uh, it's, it's directly connected, but it's a slight segue. So this, you know, coming out of COP28, one of the things I've noticed in the work we've been doing with uh, Volgeneau, the work I'm doing with climate change here in uh, Canada, is that the people who are meet, who are in the know, climate scientists, people who are like activating significant change at local, regional, national levels, they're all talking about like the inevitability of the climate change we're going to experience, right? And they're all talking about the need for us to adapt, right? But coming out of COP28, there's this recurring question of like, we need to get our mitigation in place by 2030, you know? And so I've had this almost like jarring experience of doing this last Particularly the last four years of being doing more and more climate change work, and the, and the emphasis being like adaptation, you know. Yet seeing the international conversation still being all about mitigation, you know. And th- that's a really jarring experience, you know, to to read the news but feel like and i don't feel like an expert at all i just feel like i'm lucky enough to get the chance to facilitate absolutely outstandingly brilliant people you know who do have some level of expertise so this and and then the shift into adaptation is like yes it's practical because like you need urban forests right because the temperature in the shade is lower than when it's not in the shade and heat's the biggest killer so we need to reduce the heat, you know, to save lives. Like there's a, there's a really practical, you know, adaptation. And of course it has mitigation because trees do the, you know, carbon sequestration, blah, 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 blah. But the other thing I think that keeps coming up for me and that you um, also a big proponent of, Brett, is the kind of personal adaptation that we need to go through the the changes that need to happen within inside our own hearts and within our side our own belief systems and our own brains and and like the wisdom that we somehow need to be able to tap into that can enable us in in, in you know what are they, they call them is it in where was it the inner climate change you, you know like the inner work that must accompany the outer work that we're in and i just i'd I'd love to speak to you a little bit to hear you speak a little bit about the kind of personal adaptation that needs to take Mm -hmm. place um inside of people
2: in their own hearts brains and souls and relationships and beliefs and well, I mean, before we leave the COP piece, I just do want to say it's, of course, compl- entirely predictable. I knew I couldn't
0: segue that easily. No, no, I no. knew I could. There was just no way, was
2: there? No, no, yeah. because I think we can't let it sit with this. It's We should anticipate and predict that out of every one of these kind of international gatherings, there's going to be some sort of way to try to put a happy face on it. And we are still possible and blah, blah, blah. And, and that it's, again, st- It's a context of conversation that is almost entirely dominated by the technologists Mm -hmm. who think that there are some sort of built machine solutions to this. And so not that they aren't important. And in fact, part of the segue is to say we have to actually combine natural systems and built systems together. Like in heat, for example, we can't solve the urban heat problem by simply creating more urban forests. We need to do that. Absolutely. Absolutely but we have to have a strategy for simultaneously building out a renewable energy-based cooling systems that are accessible to people. And so we need a sort of inside-outside strategy for that. So I think that's uh, one of the things that we need to be looking for, the, the intersectional strategies that bring those two major sectors together. One of the things that I've heard reported is that one of the reasons why we'd had a breakthrough in 2015 and had the 1.5 degree agreement was because there was this massive mobilization of NGOs and cities and that they created this counterbalance to this just sort of totally abstracted and disconnected international negotiation that was going on to say, no, goddammit, we're having this experience locally and you must take that into consideration. This is a real, real issue at the local level. So, and that was still in the context, like in 2014, Boulder had these massive floods, like absolutely historic floods, and we were still arguing in 2014 around whether there was, they were caused by climate change or not. Mm. By 2015, 16, 17, for sure, it, like that that whole conversation was no longer starting to take place anymore. It was like we were like, okay, yeah, it's happening now. And that shift from talking about this thing that might happen, which is where city-based climate action was for several decades into this last five years, where now it is happening, Mm-mm. is is forcing a shift of, of prioritization and roles, especially for the locally-based climate action movement, because at least in the public sector, our first job is the health, safety, and welfare of our communities. And that means that we have to prioritize the things that are here and now in our communities over the things that contribute to some abstract global benefit. Mm. And so yeah. there is a natural shift to resilience and adaptation as the focus of local government climate action, because that is our first order priority and responsibility, our obligation. So then, then, then that just sort of walks us into that. Well, then what do you do locally then right down to what do we do as individuals? And-
0: but I just, I just want to pause there because it's interesting because uh, like the, the circumstances are actually in some ways forcing local action that isn't dependent upon any of this, like, global conversation. That's take. People are actually, just through the circumstance, beginning to problem-solve locally. And yeah. that also is inherently hopeful.
2: Right? It's inherently necessary. And necessary, yeah. In Boulder, part of the challenge now locally, though, is we don't actually have – we haven't had particularly good systems of information to help us – Sort of know with any sort of quantitative sense what the risks are that we face. We just finished working on a climate change projections tool for Boulder that worked with a firm that could downscale the global models to start to then see what that set of changes would look like in Boulder under five or six different climate risks, floods, fires, um, heat, drought, extreme weather events. And just to kind of give you a sense of like what our community is facing, Boulder was you know the, the sort of respite for the Texans who would flee north in the summertime because it was nice and cool. You never had air conditioning, you didn't need it in Boulder. You know, our average days over 95, you know, for years and years for you know most of historic times that we know of was like maybe five. Um, now our projected days over 95 in Boulder is at 20. So that's like what four or five x increase. Our historic number of high fire days, historically, around 14 or 15. Already, right now, it's 116. By 2030, we project 150, 160. So almost a third of our year. We had our worst, our historically worst Colorado fire in history on December 31st, two years ago. So all I'm saying is the scale of these changes that are now underway and are coming are so significant. That it's just a necessity that we have to. And if, so to the question of like, what do we have to do on a personal level? Part of it is to prepare ourselves psychologically, emotionally, and spiritually for a world in which we're just gonna face more disruption more of the time. And how are we gonna support ourselves and one another to constantly resource ourselves back into some level of functionality? So it's a lot to do with like what we've learned and are learning from the trauma fields. About how you deal with trauma and how you integrate and digest trauma and be able to keep moving forward, and I think and now I'm going to switch gears just a little bit. And I think it's a little bit about how we change our perspective. I love that Michael Pollan comes out with you know how do we change our minds. Um, I think that it's not an accident that the Earth is offering up all of these natural medicines that are actually very useful in helping us change our perspectives and have a different. Socio-emotional experience of the world. I don't think those are accidents because I think those are parts of what we're going to have to grow as our individual capacities to live through this this stage of history.
1: Well, I I can't let that go, Brett. I mean, like we have <laughs> we have to talk about um, what you are learning, what you think others are learning from. I'm assuming you're talking about plant medicines, right? There are a number mm-hmm. that um, folks. Um, work with. And so, uh, and keeping yourself comfortable and keeping, you know, what, you know, like, what are you learning from the plants? I I actually, let me just say, I actually agree. I was just in Peru. We did um, several nights um, in ayahuasca ceremonies and Mm -hmm. are planning to go back to do something Mm -hmm. called a dieta, where Mm -hmm. we move into a more um, intense relationship with a non-psychoactive plant to -hmm. actually begin to, um, you know, I've done plant attunements, not dietas. And moving into relationship with plants i think has fundamentally shifted how i look at the world and how i walk through the world and so i just offer that in um, but what what are you learning what are you seeing what-
0: well or well just and just to let you know Brett like this is an ongoing conversation between choose and i that's like beginning to work its way into the pod <laughs> in the like you know my My youth from the age of about 14 onwards, uh, you know, I had lots of relationships with plants, but they generally involved me getting absolutely fucking smashed out of my brain uh, to the point of. Oblivion, you know, I mean, that's what I was seeking as a young man. There was a lot I wanted to get away from, you know, and so it's been a, it, you know, to the journey Tuesday's been on, and then me to like find find my own relationship to that, and and so it's just it, I love it that we're going there, and it's part. Just so you know, it's part of the ongoing dialogue between Tuesday and I, and on the pod, you know, mm-hmm. um, and I feel like I have lots of ways I tune into the wisdom of nature, and you know, can't quite get myself into tuning into plant medicine yet because i've got this historical relationship that in, in many ways although there were moments of epiphany wasn't particularly helpful or healthy yeah,
2: yeah. although as one of my therapists in the past liked to remind me we should never condemn the strategies that we had because they were brilliant ways to to deal with the world as we with what we had available to us and uh, so, I have a lot of compassion yeah, for the young man, which is was you and was me, and and the ways that we tried to find a way to sort of be with this um, world. So, I I I want to believe. I do believe, from direct experience, in some ways too, that the world has a presence and a consciousness which is larger than us and that we're a part of. And therefore, it would make sense to me that the world is trying to reach towards us so that we can sort of hear it mm-hmm. and be able to connect with. I mean, the, the resilience of the living world is so unbelievable and so mm. transformative. And it's sort of waiting for us. <laughs> it is really the all the healing that we need is right there. And so I think it's, it's such a generous gift that there are these uh, portals through which we can have a more direct connection to those, those energies and those insights, um, and I think it's cool to see the way that it's popping up all over the place. I do think it's, of course, very vulnerable to being commodified and financialized and all the things that we try to do with this stuff. And so I think that part of what you and I maybe didn't have, Tim, or at least I'll speak for myself, was I didn't have a community that could help me structure that mm-hmm. kind of an experience and help me integrate that and help me to continue to to live the the insights that came out of that. And so it's not just about finding a new substance that we can take that helps us see something if we can't if we can't integrate that into some new way of being in the world then it doesn't last and it's not worth that much frankly yeah i mean it's just like meditation Meditation's great love meditation done a lot of meditation i'm still a very scattered individual if i just like stop meditating and walk away right so yeah. i think it's the same with all of these um, vehicles and mechanisms yeah
0: i mean i definitely you know my mate gary kept us safe you know i'll say that <laughs> <laughs> but he wasn't a host of a journey either, <laughs> you know, by by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, th- th- I think the way I can relate to it is that, you know, I feel like I'm in constant relationship with the natural environment around me. Like it's where I, it's where I go for advice generally. It's where I've gone in the absence of parents in my child. It's where I felt safe, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's where I felt cared for in many ways. You know, I could be at peace in these places and not be judged or interfered with in any way it was like a safe place to go and not only that it was a place that nearly off not always but often communicated to me you know mm-hmm. and so i think when the when the two of you talk about that this is a way you know these are portals through which the natural world can communicate with us yeah i i'll buy that I'm, I'm in that i get it
2: i just wanted to say i th- i think along the lines of this integral need for a community that can hold us to be able to live the insights that we receive there are roles that we've lost in our contemporary society that are so essential to this around elders in particular people who have who have taken on the responsibility for for cultivating and holding the, these kinds of wisdoms and so i i really see tim the way that you are preparing yourself as an elder through your life, the coaching that you're doing, which is all I think really about in some ways learning more and more about how we how we can care for others on their journeys as they're emerging. So I just, it's another part of this. I'm trying to really pay more attention to where do we have elders? Um, how do I accept and start to work towards that role myself? How do I encourage those around me to recognize that you got to eventually grow out of your sort of self-indulgent life too, you know, so come on, let's get together. Let's figure out how we're going to serve those other parts of our community that need us to be in that role.
1: I really, really like that. Um, You know, there's, there's a, a frame that's been going around in some circles around being ancestors in training, right? You know what I mean? Like to actually learn how we're going to, you know, like, Of course, it's thinking seven generations ahead, but actually knowing that our training ground is now. And I was struck Brett, by you saying earlier, and this is like right at the beginning of our conversation, but I'd love to hear you speak a little bit more. You said, you know, the other position of privilege is like thinking like there's not going to have to be change or um, something given up or, you know, and I was thinking about our hour and I'm talking about collectively, I'm not making an indictment of individual people, but like our our love affair with comfort, right? Uh, Whether it's, you know, we walk into the grocery store and we've got five different kinds of soda we want, or, you know, like we have eight different kinds of toilet paper we can choose from. Like there's kind of a love affair we have with our own comfort. And I'm wondering, because I heard someone say recently about we keep thinking about climate as ways to keep the life we have, but make it sustainable, rather than actually fundamentally changing The life we have. And part of that says, like, it occurs to me as I sit here in my suburban little Cape Cod, you know, looking out the window quite warm, uh, that there's something about comfort and the human movement toward comfort at the expense of else that I just am just beginning to really think through. I don't even know where my question is there, but I'm just really aware of like, oh, I walk through my life attending to my own comfort a lot. And maybe that's part of what has to change. Not that it's bad, me being comfortable, but when you talk about things like a trauma-informed discourse, right? dealing with trauma is inherently uncomfortable. It requires mm-hmm. us to face something hard. It just requires that quote I gave at the beginning, despair, terror, hopelessness. there's something about pulling us away from this I mean, use strong words like addiction to comfort that feels like part of what you're talking about. Does that land at all for you?
2: It does. I I mean, I think in many healthy cultures, there are rites of passage that recognize these periods of difficulty in life or create a period of difficulty as a part Mm of it. So I'm a part of a father's group right now that's thinking about a rites of passage for our sons and Mm -hmm. what's that going to look like. And almost always in these societies, there's some going out and being out in an uncomfortable situation for some period of time, days, nights, and then coming back with whatever one was given from that period of discomfort. And that we often focus only on that particular, but in many healthy societies, you do that multiple times throughout your life, childbearing and motherhood. These, some of these mm-hmm. things are recognized periods passing, like the, the rites of passage around death. So I think uh-huh. that we have decultured ourselves from the, the recognition that life just does have these experiences of discomfort, many of which occur at moments of really profound transition. So, and that that's the other thing. It's like we don't acknowledge transition. Right. We don't acknowledge that we need to be multiple different aspects of ourselves instead of just one sort of sort of wish-fulfilling you know, adolescent that lives on through the, most of their adult right. lives until suddenly they get forced to recognize, oh, I guess I am mortal and these things are going to happen to me. And so, yes, I do think that there is some uh, need to, to reintegrate um, discomfort as a, as a condition that's part of life. I don't think we're going to get a lot of um, choice around of doing that though. Right. It's a good
0: thing because it's a hard sell is not it.
1: It is. You know what I mean? Yeah it is yeah
0: so it's like but like circumstance will dictate it like circumstance is dictating
2: yeah yeah but i and i think what what we don't then also get the chance to do is actually experience and celebrate the remarkable other side of that i mean there is we do have these experiences culturally of celebrating the the fruits of difficulty like Mm -hmm. you think about the late 40s and 50s, we were celebrating in the United States, at least the sort of fruits of this difficult, all requiring, you know, commitment and sacrifice that we went through. But yeah, I don't think societies ever typically sort of walk willingly into that. Yeah. No. No. I mean, there, there have been, you know, these philosophers. Apparently, Henry James was one of them, who just said, like, we need to actually contemplate the possibility of structuring this into our society so that we can try to you know and in fact uh ecotopia was written with that very sort of premise in mind i don't know if you've ever seen Colin Bach's book but there's a whole ritual that was built into that sort of northwestern ecotopian society about you know hardship and struggle and battle and things but it was all ritualized
1: Mm. um, so
2: that people could have that kind of experience
0: interesting when i was a young man i did a lot of the um deep ecology work with uh john seed and joanna macy and the, you know, mm-hmm. the council of all beings mm-hmm. and like connecting to despair to build empowerment and um yeah um we're nearing the end of the time that, You know these normally we listeners to you're not going to know this but like we just like brett got on started saying really provocative shit so i just like hit record and i was like right here we go um you know, two things have struck me, and so one is that we're not actually talking about a climate crisis at all. We're talking about an, an ecological transition or something. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm. I think the whole phrasing around hmm. climate, in some ways, is misleading. You know, I've got this thing on. my – did you just see that? Yeah. I don't know. I just, I just did something with balloons. I've got this thing. I, it happens on all the different platforms I go on. Like balloons go. But wait, wait, Brett, check this one out. Wait, physics. <laughs> Isn't that cool? The <laughs> listeners can't see. But I'm ama- I'm having amazing visual effects behind me as I talk.
2: And there's um, no plant medicines involved. And there's
0: no plant. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. When the hobbits start walking off the UFO and giving us advice, that's when you know it's <laughs> real. Um, sorry, that was a that's a quote from a British comedian called Stuart Lee. Anyway, sorry. Uh, that's good. Uh, very few people on the podcast are going to get that. Someone out there. Someone out there is like, oh, my God, that's a Stuart Lee quote. Anyway, I celebrate you, my friend, wherever you are. Um, so this is ecological. You know, talking about it as a climate issue is is in some ways reductionist or is at least playing into a siloed way of understanding an interconnected problem. And that also leads me to, I want you to talk a little bit about the fourth wave where you started, mm. which is like, what is this fourth wave you're talking about? And what, what's the promise of it, I guess,
2: in some ways? This was brought forward for me through the work of a couple of authors, Strauss and Howe, in their their book in the late 90s called um, The Fourth Turning in American Prophecy. And then I think it's Howe, one of them died. I think it's Howe that's still alive has written this, The Fourth Turning is Here. And he asserts that there's this long history of historians ag- agreeing that, that societies have a memory that's about the duration of the longest human life, so roughly 80 to 100 years, and that, you know, at the very beginning, a society goes through some sort of catharsis that forces them to really come together to get through that crisis. But that as time proceeds, the people that are that still remain in the society that remember that eventually die out. So that by the time you get to the fourth turning, which is like essentially three 25-year generations after that first hero generation – You basically like, I don't give a shit about what happened back then. It's all really different Mm. now. And then suddenly there's no cohesion left in society. Everything is kind of atomized into sort of individual. So that's their mapping is that that's where we are. We're in the fourth turning. We're in the the last cycle as the system starts to reset. And that that requires some kinds of fundamental, all-consuming, sort of sacrifice-compelling transition. And that they've mapped in that book backwards, like three or four hundred years to show those cycles. So that makes sense to me, and it feels like why we are now in a period of time that for most of my career, we haven't seen fundamental systemic change, because the system, the social system, and all of its constructs weren't really susceptible to being changed, but clearly our system is breaking down now, and that there is going to have to be some new orientation. The thing that they would say is, you can predict with certainty if the theory is right that you'll go through this. What you can't predict is what the character of the society will be that emerges from it. And we could go in very different directions. And that's why what seems to determine what direction you go, whether you, in my view, evolve or devolve, is the work that's going on in this very chaotic time that's either laying out pathways for that new direction or isn't. And if it isn't, then you'll certainly – it's easy to get pulled into that sort of devolving fascist authoritarian sort of way. It's it's kind of the easiest path as human beings. So I think that the work of our time is – creating lots of these different pathways. But I think that the work that you guys are such pioneers in is that we have to be creating councils that we can come together in at all scales and in all places and in all forms so that we can constantly be evaluate Where are we? What's happening now? What do I see? What do you see? Because as human beings, that's the amazing thing about us. We were wired for cooperation. That's mm-hmm. the reason that we evolve so rapidly is because we actually do really well together. We've been designed for that. It's just that we can we can use that capability in really small circle ways that then tend to be very tribal and sort of, you know, aggressive and hostile or we can use it in larger circle ways. So I'm mm. excited and I keep learning from both of you all the time. And I and I look forward to continuing to evolve my capacities to sit in council, to to understand together what's what, what we're doing and then to be creatively coming up with adaptive solutions over and over again.
0: Mm. Love it choose well I, mean, I, I can close this out but i'm just oh, i don't want to close this out without you
1: yeah well i think um yeah that's right where i was going tim is like, i feel like i'd be reopening the conversation so perhaps because maybe we'll just have to have bread on in season seven uh yeah i think i'm
0: gonna have to have you back
1: yeah because <laughs> there's just so much more but this is great this has been fantastic yeah. so i'll let you close this out tim
2: Well, I just want to say it's an an honor to be invited. I think, again, that the work that both of you are doing is really, it's vital. It's vital. We have to find new ways of being together in these difficult times. And that that's what I see your work constantly doing is enabling us to relax, step out of our preconceptions, step out of our guards, and just say, okay, I'm safe enough now that I can see the world in a bigger way together right now. Mm. Yeah.
0: Well, mate, I mean, I've I've had the pleasure of working with you on a few occasions now, and it's a total delight. I mean, I think you've come across in this podcast as as very earnest, but I want everyone to know that you're actually really fun to be around too. (laughs) Like, we have a good time, don't we? Yes. And and I think that's a big piece of it. I was just saying to someone the other day, like, how much I enjoy working with you, and Betsy, who also introduced us. Like, Mm. it's just like a... There's so it's just like a lovely connection. And then and, you know, over the years of doing this type of work, I, I've learned to listen for that. I've learned mm. to look for that, you know, like mm. that quality of kind of a connection with someone who you very kind of like quickly learn to trust and fall mm. in love with and then suddenly find you're in delightful but often very hard work together. Mm. And so I've just, uh, I'm really, really grateful to have met you and and find it consistently inspiring the way that you find words to describe things that, defy my ability to articulate often Mm -hmm. you know and uh you know it's both inspiring and comforting and provocative all at the same time uh so thank you so much for finding the time i know in what is a crazy busy life for you to come on here and hang out with us for an hour just
2: appreciate it my pleasure